podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we are here with the season two finale. Can't really believe we've got to the end of this already. <laughs> I know. It feels like like really quick, but also like it's like, been a lot of Like work. we've been working on it for a, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but well, that's what I was going to say is that it's been a really packed season, even though it's been a bit shorter. And I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, so I know I have as well. Yeah. I hope that all you listeners have too. Because <laughs> we've had some really cracking books. Yeah. I feel like we've discovered more about like myths and language in this season. Yeah, definitely. I have noticed that. I think our... I don't know if it's just the books we've been reading, but there seems to be a lot more like in them. Mm. I don't feel like we're just coming here and being like, oh, this is a story. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's a lot more to like dig out, which is fun. Yeah. We brought music on the scene again yes. with our album special and we of course treated everyone to an amazing guest feature <laughs> with the wonderful Dee Fretter who supports us in everything we do Yes, and we love him. Main hype man. <laughs> <laughs> do, do go and listen to his podcast Don't Fret as well. And yeah, so we're already working up ideas for the next season. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, Emily, let's have a throwback. What's <laughs> been your highlight of the season? There's been a few highlights. I think you might say one of mine, so I've just left it for you to say. So I think my highlight was one of the questions we answered, which was for each of us to write a YA fantasy novel synopsis for each other. That was so fun. Um, yeah, just because it was loads of fun and like even though we slipped in like jokes about each other I think we actually both made up stories that we would want to read <laughs> so like I feel like mission accomplished all around we got like some slight ribbon in there but also just nice stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was mostly just like I feel like you would like to be in this <laughs> yeah <laughs> what was your highlight I think mine has either been the top five album special yeah because it is basically just what we talk about anyway yeah but structured and I'm really interested to look back on it in like a few years yeah and see like what answers have changed yeah definitely I think that'll be good but I also like I loved the Enneagram test thing that you did for your insight and then like it had the corresponding songs that yeah. was so cool that was such a surprise for me because I didn't know what you were gonna do yeah I'm I had the song because I wanted that to be a surprise and I was worried you were going to be like this is too much <laughs> but I'm glad you liked it no I loved it it was so fun so yeah I think that was probably my my highlight oh nice So without further ado, for the last time this season, <laughs> what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with the Villains series by V.E. Schwab. First of all, I thought this was a finished duology, but it turns out it's actually an unfinished trilogy. And so part of me thought maybe I shouldn't talk about it, I should wait till the third one comes out. But at this point, even V.E. Schwab doesn't know when the third one is coming out. So I'm not going to wait, I'm just going to tell you about it because I really like them. <laughs> Do it man, life moves um, fast, all of that. <laughs> so yeah, so the first book Vicious came out in 2014 and the second book Vengeful came out in 2019. So there already was a big gap between these two. Mm. And you guys all know how I fell in love with The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue uh, last year and I basically decided I'm going to read every single book of V.E. Schwab's. So the first thing I 
read or went back and read was The Near Witch, which is her debut, which is this really like sweet, bit dark, almost kind of fairy tale. But I knew that the villain series I would love and that would like capture my imagination because it's a dark academia tale about superpowers. (laughs) Yeah, that's very you. Yeah. (laughs) So Vicious flips between two time periods. There is the past, the college years of Victor Vale and Eli Ever. Eli's thesis is on extraordinaries or EOs. And I'm going to explain Eli's research a bit because it's not a spoiler. It's very early on in the books. And I just wanted to like explain the world a bit because mm-hmm. I think it's very well thought out. So essentially, EOs are a bit like X-Men mutants. So humans who have these special abilities making them other. Right. Except Eli discovers or, or theorises that instead of the X-Men mutants who are born with that ability, EOs' abilities are made he works out that to become an EO you have to have a near-death experience but also have enough will or want to survive so when you come back to life like after your heart stopping you're reborn with an ability and that ability he works out reflects your final thoughts as you die that's so cool yeah I know (laughs) so in the past we have Eli and Victor experimenting on themselves they both become EOs And then, as I said, we have the present day narrative 10 years later. And in the present day, Victor Vale is just broken out of prison and he and Eli Ever want each other dead. And that's essentially the premise of the book. (laughs) You have this like dark academia thread during their college years, which really throws into question lots about like ethics and morality, the pursuit of knowledge, playing God. Mm. And then you follow Victor and Eli with their respective sidekicks 10 years later, with chapters in a kind of countdown style towards their eventual standoff at the end. Such a good structure! Yeah, no, it is. (laughs) The chapters are also quite short, so, like, you have really short scenes flipping between past and present, which obviously creates this really tense atmosphere and it's very, like, addicting to read. Um, I read both of these books over three or four days because I just couldn't put them down I just kept reading them and then obviously as the book unravels you learn what happens to make Victor and Eli hate each other because that's the very important thing about the villain series is it's called villains because there are no superheroes just villains with superpowers I see I see yes so so on to quotes can talk about some of my favorite moments because there's definitely spoilers so I'm going to focus on two things One's my favourite character, Victor, Mm -hmm. and the other is Eli's research around the EOs. So I'm going to read the start of chapter two of Vicious, which is the first chapter that's set in the past. And I want to read this out for two reasons. One is that it conveys the very philosophical approach that Schwab has taken to a genre like this. It's just a very intelligent piece of writing, I think. And the second is that it introduces Victor Vale's hobby. So yeah, this is a few pages long, but it's so good, it's worth it. It's a finale. (laughs) Go all out. (laughs) Exactly. Victor drew a steady, straight, black line through the words Marvel. The paper they'd printed the text on was thick enough to keep the ink from bleeding through, so long as he didn't press down too hard. He stopped to reread the altered page and winced as one of the metal flourishes on Lachlan's university's wrought iron fence dug into his back. 
The school prided itself on its country club meets gothic manor ambiance, but the ornate railing that encircled Lachlan, though striving to evoke both the university's exclusive nature and its old world aesthetic, succeeded only in being pretentious and suffocating. It reminded Victor of an elegant cage. He shifted his weight and repositioned the book on his knee, wondering at the sheer size of it as he twirled the sharpie over his knuckles. It was a self-help book, the latest in a series of five, by the world-renowned Doctors Vale, the very same Vales who were currently on an international tour, the very same Vales who had budgeted just enough time in their busy schedules, even back before they were best-selling empowerment gurus, to produce Victor. He thumbed back through the pages until he found the beginning of his most recent undertaking and began to read. For the first time, he wasn't effacing a veil book simply for pleasure. No, this was for credit. Victor couldn't help but smile. He took an immense pride in paring down his parents' works, stripping the expansive chapters and empowerment down to simple, disturbingly effective messages. He'd been blacking them out for more than a decade now, since he was ten, a painstaking but satisfying affair, but until last week he'd never been able to count it for anything as useful as school credit. Last week, when he accidentally left his latest project in the art studios over lunch, Lachlan's university had a mandatory art credit, even for budding doctors and scientists, he'd come back to his teacher poring over it. He'd expected a reprimand, some lecture on the cultural cost of defacing literature, or maybe the material cost of paper. Instead, the teacher had taken the literary destruction as art. He'd practically supplied the explanation, filled in any blanks using terms such as expression, identity, found art, reshaping. Victor had only nodded and offered a perfect word to the end of the teacher's list, rewriting. And just like that, his senior art thesis had been determined. The marker hissed as he drew another line, blotting out several sentences in the middle of the page. His knee was going numb from the weight of the tome. If he were in need of self-help, he would search for a thin, simple book, one whose shape mimicked its promise. But maybe some people needed more. Maybe some people scanned the shelves for the heftiest one, assuming that more pages meant more emotional or psychological aid. He skimmed the words and smiled as he found another section to ink out. By the time the first bell rang, signalling the end of Victor's art elective, he turned his parents' lectures on how to start the day into Be lost. Give up. Give in. In the end, it would be better to surrender before you begin. Be lost. Be lost and then you will not care if you are ever found. He'd had to strike through entire paragraphs to make the sentence perfect after he accidentally marked out ever and had to go on until he found another instance of the word. But it was worth it. The pages of black that stretched between if you are and ever and found gave the words just the right sense of abandonment. Victor heard someone coming but didn't look up. He flipped through to the back of the book where he'd been working on a separate exercise. The sharpie cut through another paragraph, line by line, the sound as slow and even as breathing. He'd marvelled once that his parents' book were in fact self-help, simply not in the way they'd intended. He found their destruction incredibly soothing, a kind of meditation. Vandalising school property again. Victor looked up to find Eli standing over him. 
The library plastic cover crinkled beneath his fingertips as he tipped the book up to show Eli the spine, where Vale was printed in bold capital letters. He wasn't about to pay twenty five ninety nine when Lachlan's library had such a suspiciously extensive collection of Vale Doctrine self-help. Eli took the book from him and skimmed. Perhaps it is in our best interest to, to surrender, to give up rather than waste words. Victor shrugged. He wasn't done yet. You have an extra two before surrender, said Eli, tossing the book back. Victor caught it and frowned, tracing his finger through the makeshift sentence until he found his mistake and efficiently blotted out the word. You've got too much time, Vic. You must make time for that which matters, he recited, for that which defines you. Your passion, your progress, your pen. Take it up and write your own story. Eli looked at him for a long moment, brow crinkling. That's awful. It's from the introduction, said Victor. Don't worry, I blacked it out. He flipped back through the pages, a web of thin letters and fat black lines until he reached the front. They totally murdered Emerson. Eli shrugged. All I know is that book is a sniffer's dream, he said. He was right. The four Sharpies Victor had gone through in converting the book to art had given an incredibly strong odour, one which Victor found at once entrancing and revolting. He got enough of a high from the destruction itself, but he supposed the smell was an unexpected addition to the project's complexity, or so the art teacher would spin it. Eli leaned back against the rail. His rich brown hair caught the too bright sun, ringing out reds and even threads of gold. Victor's hair was a pale blonde. When the sunlight hit him, it didn't bring out any colours, but only accentuated the lack of colour, making him look more like an old-fashioned photo than a flesh-and-blood student. Eli was still staring down at the book in Victor's hands. Doesn't the Sharpie ruin whatever's on the other side? You'd think, said Victor, but they use this freakishly heavy paper, like they want the weight of what they're saying to sink in. Eli's laugh was drowned by the second bell, ringing out across the emptying squad. The bells weren't buzzers, of course, Lachlan was too civilised, but they were loud and almost ominous, a single deep church bell from the spiritual centre that sat in the middle of campus. Eli cursed and helped Victor to his feet, already turning toward the huddle of science buildings, face in rich red brick to make them seem less sterile. Victor took his time. They still had a minute before the final bell sounded, and even if they were late, the teachers would never mark them down. All Eli had to do was smile. All Victor had to do was lie. Both proved frighteningly effective. I love that. <laughs> I love that the first line of that was a strike through the word Marvel. Yeah, that's literally my exact point that I've written. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, so that's Schwab signposting that although she's in the world of superpowers and has references to the genre, this is not going to be a story like X-Men or other Marvel comics. Like, that has to be on purpose. Definitely. <laughs> but it's like, it, it's not subtle, but it's not, like, it works in yeah. the world of the story. Yep, exactly. It's so good. Yeah, some other word choice I like is Victor calling the campus an elegant cage, because in the future he's just broken out of prison, so mm. I like the parallel there. Also, the fact that he accidentally scores out the word ever and has to keep going until he finds it again. 
don't want to dive into that too much, but ever is Eli's surname or the one that he gives himself when he becomes an eagle. So that's an interesting image. Mm. And those final lines, all Eli had to do was smile, all Victor had to do was lie, both proved frighteningly, I can't say that word, frighteningly effective. That may be accurate in the future too. (laughs) So yeah, like I love the setting of this prestigious university. We've got total dark academia vibes, (laughs) the aesthetic of the campus and in that quite pretentious way that Victor and Eli speak to one another. But you also see that like easy and close relationship between them two. Like Victor doesn't look up when he hears someone approaching and I think that's because he knows it'll be Eli. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was basically just in love with Victor from this passage. I think he's so interesting. Like he's creative and destructive, intelligent and thoughtful. I just want to know so much more about him from that chapter. And I like Eli's character too for different reasons. Victor's my (laughs) favourite. So I have another passage about Victor blacking out his parents' words before I talk about that concept just in a bit more detail. So this quote is from the present day, so 10 years after the one I just read. And the Sydney who is mentioned is a young teen who's become like a kind of sidekick to Victor. But I won't really say too much about her. But as they rounded the corner, a bookstore came into view, and there in the front window, a massive poster announced the newest Veil book on sale this summer. Victor cringed. He hadn't spoken to his own parents in nearly eight years. Apparently having a convicted offspring, at least one that didn't show any inclinations toward being rehabilitated, especially not with the Veil system, wasn't great for book sales. Victor had pointed out that it wasn't that bad for book sales either, that they might be able to capitalise on that niche, morbid curiosity buyers, but his parents hadn't been impressed. Victor wasn't terribly distraught about the falling out, but he'd also been spared their window displays for nearly a decade. To their credit, they sent a set of books to his sale in isolation, which he'd cherished, rationing the destruction to make it last as long as possible. When he finally integrated, he found that the penitentiary library had, not surprisingly, stocked a complete set of Veil self-help books, and he'd corrected those in his trademark fashion until writing had caught on and denied him access. Now Victor wandered into the store, Sydney close behind, and bought a copy of the newest book, entitled Set Yourself Free, and subtitled From the Prison of Your Discontent. It felt like a pretty obvious jab. Victor also bought a handful of black sharpies from the turnstile by the checkout counter and asked Sydney if she wanted anything, but she simply shook her head and clutched her to-go cup of cocoa. Back out front, Victor considered to the storefront window, but he feared the sharpies weren't big enough, and besides, he didn't intend to get picked up for vandalism of all things, so he was forced to leave the window untouched. It was a shame, he thought, as they walked on. There had been an excerpt, blown up large and pasted on the window, and in a passage studded with overwrought gems, his favourite being, out of the ruins of our self-made jails, that he had seen the perfect opportunity to spell out a simple but effective, we ruin all we touch. I really like that. Yeah, it's just so clever. Can I ask... (laughs) This is totally not relevant, but when he <laughs> destroys his parents' like previous books, does he always correct them to the same thing? Or does it not say? What do you mean, like the same kind of words? Yeah, or... like does he put the same message in every copy or does he change it every time? 
Oh, because he'll probably do the same one. Yeah. I don't actually know. I would be interested to know that. I'd Schwab. I feel like he would do a different thing every time. So do I. I get that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good question, but I don't have the answer. So yeah, I am obsessed with Schwab choosing to give Victor this hobby. So first of all, I think I have mentioned this before, but Schwab studied poetry. And so I love that she's brought a heap of poetry into the series. Because the series is about superpowers, it sounds like it would be like a juxtaposition, but it just works so well because it really allows her to lean into the very thoughtful nature of these books. And also, as I mentioned before, with like the words Marvel and Ever, she's using the blackout poetry to enrich the actual narrative. Like it's not just like a throwaway hobby. Yeah. In a later chapter, Victor describes his blackout poetry as a slow obliteration of someone else's words. And I love that because I think it shows that even though he says he gets pleasure out of it, he's not approaching it as a purely artistic form or even as a form of creation. He's doing it as a form of destruction. Mm -hmm. But the lines he forms, I think, are still poetic and beautiful and dark. So the combination of all of that is very telling of his character and the way he uses his power as well. But yeah, as I said earlier, I want to talk a bit about the research as well, the dark academia side of the story. First, I thought it would be fun to read out the moment they discover that Eli's hypothesis was true, that they really did manage to turn him into an EO. I'm not going to explain what they did, because that's just fun to read, but this is the aftermath when they think they failed, and they've gone out to get drunk and commiserate. (laughs) (laughs) Despite a festive air, both had done their best to avoid the subject of what had happened, and how lucky Eli, and really both of them, had been. Neither seemed eager to talk about it, and in the absence of any extraordinary symptoms, other than feeling extraordinarily lucky, neither had reason to gloat as much as thank their stars, which they did freely, tipping imaginary but brimming glasses skyward as they stumbled home. They poured invisible liquor on the concrete as a gift to earth or God or fate or whatever force had let them have their fun and live to know it had been nothing more than that. Victor felt warm despite the flurries of snow, alive and even welcomed to the last dregs of pain from his own unpleasant proximity to death. Eli beamed dazedly at the night sky and then he stepped off the sidewalk, or tried to, but his heel caught the edge and he stumbled landing in his hands and knees among a patch of dirty snow and tyre tracks and broken glass. He hissed, recoiled, and Victor saw blood, a smear of red against a dingy, snow-dusted street. Eli proceeded to sit on the lip of the curb, tilting his palm towards the nearest street lamp to get a better look at the gash there, glittering with the remains of someone's abandoned beer bottle. Ouch, said Victor, leaning over him to examine the cut and nearly losing his balance. He caught himself on the street lamp as Eli cursed softly and pulled the largest shard out. Think I'll need stitches. He held his bloody hand up for Victor to inspect, as if the latter's vision and judgement were any better than his own right now. Victor squinted and was about to reply with as much authority as he could muster when something happened. The cut on Eli's palm began to close. The world, which had been swaying in Victor's vision, came to an abrupt stop. Stray flakes hung in the air, and their breath hovered in clouds over their lips. There was no movement except that of Eli's flesh healing. And Eli must have felt it, 
because he lowered his hand into his lap and the two gazed down as the gash that had run from pinky to thumb knitted itself back together. In moments, the bleeding had stopped, the blood already lost now drying on his skin, and the wound was nothing more than a wrinkle, a faint scar, and then not even that. The cut was just... gone. Hours passed in blinks as the two let it sink in, what that meant, what they had done. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. Eli rubbed his thumb over the fresh skin of his palm, but Victor was the first to speak, and when he did, it was with an eloquence and composure perfectly befitting the situation. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) So, there we go. (laughs) I know I haven't mentioned what their powers are yet. I was doing that on purpose. That there's Eli's he can regenerate. Um, That's really cool. Eli ever! I get it. Mm-hmm. And I will remind you that your power is affected by your death and the final thoughts that you have. And I'm not going to say what Eli's final thoughts were as he was dying, but that's something for you guys to think over. <laughs> what would he have to be thinking to be reborn with the power of regeneration? Mm. There's a question for you. Very philosophical. <laughs> I think I'm still going to keep Victor's power a secret because, again, it's just very clever and I think his is a particularly fascinating one to discover while reading it but if I allowed myself to give spoilers there's so much I could say (laughs) about Victor's power but anyway so I don't want to talk about Vengeful too much the second book but I do want to read one quote from it and it's actually not a spoiler because the quote is from when Victor and Eli are at college Mm. like Vicious it has a present day narrative that flashes back to the past and what I will say about Vengeful is that Schwab has done an excellent job at making the world larger while also retroactively filling in some gaps from Vicious. So for example in this passage I'm going to read out we find out how Eli first came up with the idea of researching EOs. To see a world in a grain of sand. Thunder rumbled in the distance, the clouds flushing blue. It was the start of senior year, and after unpacking, they'd gone up on the roof to watch the storm roll in. And heaven in a wildflower, continued Eli. He lifted his palm until it seemed to rest just beneath the lightning. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand. Honestly, Eli, said Victor, perching on one of the folded chairs that scattered the makeshift patio. Spare me the scripture. Eli's hand fell away. It's not the Bible, he said testily. It's Blake. Get some culture. (laughs) He swept the bottle of scotch away from Victor. And the point holds. There's no harm in seeing a creator behind the creation. There is when you purport to study science. Eli shook his head. Victor didn't understand, would never understand, that it wasn't a matter of faith or science. The two were inextricable. Eli took a cautious sip from the stolen bottle and sank into a second chair as the storm crept closer. It was their first night back, the first night in their new shared apartment. Victor had spent his summer avoiding his parents on some remote family vacation while getting a head start on organic chemistry. Eli had spent his at Lachlan's, interning under Professor Lynn. He caught a sideways glance at his friend, who was sitting forward, elbows on his knees, his attention seemingly transfixed on the distant lightning. Initially, Victor had presented a dilemma. Eli Cardale's persona, so carefully constructed over the last decade, found little audience with his sober new roommate. 
There is no need for a steady smile, affability, the practised ease. There is no point to them, not when Victor seemed so utterly disinterested. No, disinterested was the wrong word. Victor's attention was constant, acute. But the more charming Eli tried to be, the less Victor responded to it. In fact, he seemed annoyed by the effort. As if Victor knew it was just that. An effort. A show. Eli found himself culling the unnecessary trappings, trimming his persona down to the essentials. And when he did that, Victor warmed. Turned towards Eli like a face toward a mirror. Like to like. It frightened and thrilled Eli to be seen and to see himself reflected. Not all of himself, they were still so different, but there was something vital, a core of the same precious metal glinting through the rock. Lightning flashed arterial lines of blue over the rooftop, and seconds later the world around them shook with a concussive force. Eli felt the tremor through his bones. He loved storms. They made him feel small, a single stitch in a vast pattern, a drop of water in a downpour. Moments later, the rain began to fall. In seconds, the first drops became a downpour. Shit, muttered Victor, springing up from his seat. He jogged towards the roof door. Eli rose, but didn't follow. Within seconds, he was soaked through. You coming? shouted Victor over the rain. You go ahead, said Eli, the downpour raising his voice. He tipped his head back and let himself be swallowed by the storm. An hour later, Eli padded barefoot across the apartment, dripping rainwater in his wake. Victor's door was closed, the lights out. After reaching his room, Eli peeled off his soaked clothes and sank into his chair as the storm faded beyond the windows. Two in the morning, classes starting the next day, but sleep still eluded him. His cell phone sat on the desk, a handful of texts from Angie, but Eli wasn't in the mood for that. And anyhow, she was probably asleep by now. He ran a hand through his damp hair, slicking it back, and tapped his computer awake. Something stuck with him from the roof, the image of the lightning in his palm. Eli had spent the better part of the summer studying electromagnetism in the human body, the literal and metaphorical spark of life. Now, drifting in that exhausted early hours space, the darkened room and the artificial light of the laptop keeping him conscious of not fully awake, his fingers slid over the keyboard and he began to search. For what, he wasn't exactly sure. One screen, one page, one site gave way to another, Eli's attention wandering between articles and essays and forums like a mind lost in a dream. But Eli wasn't lost. He was just trying to find the thread. He'd encountered a theory some weeks before, on another insomniac night. Over the last month, it had grown roots, fed on his focus. Eli still didn't know what made him click that first link. Victor would have blamed idle curiosity or fatigue, but in Eli's trance-like state, it felt eerily familiar. A hand resting over his own. A blessing. A push. The theory Eli had discovered was this. That sudden, extreme trauma could lead to a cataclysmic, even permanent shift in physical nature and ability. That through life-or-death trauma, people could be rewired, remade. It was pseudoscience at best. But pseudoscience wasn't automatically wrong. It was simply a theory that hadn't been adequately proven. What if it could be? After all, people endured extraordinary things. 
claimed feats of strength, moments of heightened ability. Was the leap so extreme? Could something happen in that life-or-death moment, that tunnel between darkness and light? Was it madness to believe, or arrogance to not? The page loaded and Eli's heart quickened as he stared at the word across the top of the screen. Extraordinary. Well, <laughs> I love the whole science and faith debate. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was one thing I, I wanted to note was that there's so many interesting questions in this flashback. So you do have like the, the science and faith debate. Victor finds Eli's faith something confusing about him because he's this very serious scientist. He's very charming and to Victor, Eli having faith always seems slightly wrong. Mm. Like it doesn't quite match up. But as you can see hinted in this passage, Eli's persona has been carefully constructed. Mm. Although I won't say why, obviously. So yeah, we have faith in science, like persona, poetry, and then that thought process that leads Eli to researching EOs and as we know already, becoming one himself along with Victor. It's just such a great scene. <laughs> I also like it's such a cliche, but like a rainstorm scene. Mm-hmm. Just love it. I love yep. a storm. Yeah. Also, for those of you who have read this, don't you think it's interesting that it's Eli who has the lightning in his hand? We'll just leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so some things I didn't get to mention from this series are like the really great action scenes and all the different kinds of powers that you read about. It must have been so fun working out what all the deaths and last thoughts would be mm-hmm. to like lead to what power. And I've not really mentioned any of the sidekicks. One of them's a giant dog who I love. <gasps> Puppy! Yeah. There are so many wonderful character interactions too, especially with Victor and his team. There's a sense of like found family and you get some really sweet moments there. Because these are people who do villainous things, but they care deeply for each other. And I especially love the relationship between Victor and Sydney, who you saw a tiny bit of earlier. But yeah, I think if you didn't have these characters who all care about each other, I think the series would be something totally different, and I don't think I would like it mm. as much. And yeah, the relationship between Victor and Eli is just one of those ones I love to read, because their friendship makes sense, and their later hatred of each other makes sense. <laughs> Like, they're quite different people, but their shared vengeance is very wonderful to read. And there's just so much tension, like, between them. And the books are rich with reasons for the way that they act like they do. (laughs) And yeah, the third book, which I believe is called Victorious, will be out in the next few years. I think she's just started working on it. And there is a graphic novel called Extraordinary, which is a spin-off following another EO but the characters from these books are like in it hmm. and that the first issue of that's is actually out now and i think the second one might be out by the time this episode's up or you can do what i did and you can pre-order the hardback bind up of all the issues which is out in october because i'm not really a graphic novel person but i just want more of this story and like the artwork does look amazing so i'm excited about that it's giving me big v for vendetta vibes yeah just because of like all the v's yeah and, like the, yeah the kind of like comic adjacent yeah i can i can see that so that's me and i just want to say if anyone has any recommendations of what schwab books i should read next please tell me because there's so many there <laughs> that i can so many. i can't decide i think i'm most tempted by the shades of magic series at the moment but i'm open 
because I don't know much about the others yet so please let me know <laughs> what ones I should read next. And that is me. Yay! <laughs> what are you infatuated with? I am infatuated with Luster by Raven Leilani. So very different direction, <laughs> switching gears. This novel came out last year and I've been really looking forward to reading it. I've seen it on like so many lists and loads of authors that I like have recommended it. What I will say before I go into how much I liked it is that I wish I'd read this before I read things like Insatiable by Daisy Buchanan or even Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, mm. even though that was out first, mm. or My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Mojveg, because it's not necessarily that the stories are similar, but they are similarly rendered in that very like hard, they're all called like sharp, razor, sharp, yeah. witty, like observational books. And even though I think Luster actually does it better than a lot of those books, it is of that ilk, and I think I'm a bit oversaturated with that yeah. at the minute. However, I still really enjoyed it, and I found it really interesting, so I wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the story follows Edie, who is 23. She's in New York, and she's working a job in publishing. So, you know, it's got the, it's got <laughs> the basics down. <laughs> and basically, she's just trying to make it. Like, she is struggling. Mm-hmm. She meets Eric, a middle-aged married man, They have an intense online courtship. This is all in the first few pages. Mm -hmm. He says his marriage is open and they begin a relationship. But one of the rules, as set out by Eric's wife, is that he can never have Edie at their house. Mm -hmm. But obviously it all kicks off because one night when the wife isn't there, he does. Right. And what this novel does really well is it's not about Edie and Eric. It becomes a story about... Eric's wife, who incidentally is called Rebecca, and I'll talk more about that, mm-hmm. and their adopted daughter, Akila and, and Edie. And it's so interesting. And I really don't think that it's an accident that the wife, who is white and a morgue technician, compared to Edie, who is black and a painter, is called Rebecca. Mm. There are a lot of parallels to the female gothic in this novel, particularly Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. So much to do with the home and the places that are off-limits in it. The hovering presence of the irreplaceable wife. There's like a whole dissertation in there. But I don't think that I can really go into that whole thing without loads of spoilers. Mm. So I won't go there today. But yeah, I want people to read it and like think about it in terms of basically your thesis. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm looking at the back of that book right now. Mm-hmm. And you've got like Dolly Alderton and... Like Daisy Johnson, who I all think like, yeah, that makes sense for this type of book. But then you have Jesse Burton, who is a gothic writer. Yeah. On there as well. That's interesting. And Zadie Smith. And Zadie Smith. Yeah. Who obviously deals with like the home a lot. But yeah, from the cover of it, you'd think it was like just a romance, and it's it's not. It's incredibly sinister. Mm. But instead of going into all of that, I wanted to show today how the relationships between the characters are drawn. Um, Because I don't talk about character a lot. I think one of my favourite things about this book is that it only really has four characters. Like, five if you count. There's, like, a secondary character at Edie's work. But, like, the dynamics between the main four are just so instantly visible and, like, really quickly drawn. I think it's amazing. So the first relationship I want to look at is between Edie and Eric. So I'll read a passage from the very first chapter, and this is their first real date. 
A month is too long to talk online. In the time we have been talking, my imagination has run wild. Based on his liberal use of the semicolon, I just assumed this date would go well. But everything is different, IRL. For one thing, I am not as quick on my feet. There is no time to consider my words or to craft a clever response in iOS notes. There is also the fact of body heat, the inarticulable parts of being close to a man, the sweet feral thing underneath their cologne, the way it sometimes feels as if there are no whites to their eyes, a man's profound adrenal craziness, the tenuousness of his restraint. I feel it on me and inside me like I'm being possessed. When we talked online, we both did some work to fill in the blanks. We filled them in optimistically, with the kind of yearning that brightens and distorts. We had elaborate hypothetical dinners, and we talked about doctor's appointments we were afraid to make. Now there are no blanks, and when he rubs sunblock on my back, it is both too little and too much. Is this okay? he asks, his breath hot on the back of my neck. Uh Uh-huh, I say, trying not to make the contact into more than it is. However, his hands are excellent. They are warm and wide and soft, and I have not been laid in months. For a moment, I'm sure I'm going to cry, which is not unusual because I cry often and everywhere, and most especially because of this one Olive Garden commercial. I excuse myself and run to the bathroom, where I look into the mirror and reassure myself that there are bigger things than the moment I am in. Gerrymandering. Genealogical conglomerates selling my cheek swabs to the state. Of course, there is still the business of trying to look sexy while hurtling across the sky. Like most white people who eat beans in the woods undeterred by the fresh faecal evidence of hungry bears, Eric finds his mortality and soft meaty body a petty, incidental thing. I, on the other hand, am acutely aware of all the ways I might die. So when the teenage park associate slaps my harness down and slogs over to the levers, I think of all my unfinished business. The quart of pistachio gelato in my freezer, the 1.5 wanks left in my half-dead vibrator, my Mr Rogers box set. Eric's enthusiasm is infectious. After the first two rides, I am enjoying myself, and not just because dying means I won't have to pay my student loans. He laces his fingers into mine and drags me to the front, apparently serious enough about his park experience to have paid the extra fee to skip the line. I go to tie my shoelaces and return to find him talking to the porky pig mascot about entry-level positions at the archive. We always need quality customer service, he says pressing his phone number into the Porky's pink felt mitt. We board the highest coaster in the park for the third time, and he screams like it is the first. He really, truly screams. At first it is off-putting, but as we scale the last track, I realise that I like it. I like it a lot. I can't tell if it's the dissonance, the girliness of this inclination compared to his mass, or my envy of his wonder, the glee in his terror, the willingness to experience anew what is familiar. His joy is raw in a way that makes me feel like I can unzip my skin suit and show him all the ooze inside. But not yet. There is a sadness about his fervour, the way it feels slightly put on, as if he has something to prove. He looks over at me when we reach the top, the wind cards through his hair. Behind his eyes, I see myself fractured into pieces. Suddenly it feels painful to be this ordinary, to be this open to him. And he looks at me and pretends I'm not just a cheaper version of a fast Italian car. <laughs> wow. First of all, this isn't the point. Mm. But I miss roller coasters. I don't really. I know, I know you don't like them, but I just... I really miss them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go on one. Is there a roller coaster near us? Is there... <laughs> no, the no. closest is like M&D's, but we're, that doesn't yeah, count. That doesn't count. 
Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been on one since I was a child. Maybe I wouldn't be so scared anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Let's go to Thorpe Park. <laughs> I'll hold the candy floss. <laughs> no, but honestly, I, I think this is such a clever scene. But do you get what I mean about it? It's like so millennial that it almost hurts. Yeah. Like, yeah. there are too many references. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I like it because it has them at the top of the roller coaster. And this is literally as exciting as the relationship gets. Yeah. Like, it does all go downhill from here. And even here, she can see that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole arc of Edie and Eric, and I don't feel like this spoils anything, is a story of what happens when potential is better than reality. Mm. And she knows she's kidding herself right from the outset. And so straight away, we're told to kind of write off this thing with Eric as incidental, which it totally is, because the story is about all the women, Edie and Rebecca and Edie and Akila. Mm-hmm. So the next relationship that we really have to care about, and arguably the central one of the novel, is the one with Rebecca. And she starts off as this really mysterious entity, even though we meet her quite shortly into the novel. Basically, again this is a set up to the story so it's not really a spoiler, Edie ends up evicted with nowhere to go. And without Eric being involved in the decision, Rebecca offers her a guest room in their house. Okay. So it's very weird. (laughs) And she's not in a position to say no. And again, importantly, Rebecca is white, Edie is black, Rebecca's adopted daughter Akila is black. So there's a lot to unpack there. Mm-hmm. But there's this weird relationship that develops between them, and a lot of it takes place in the context of their jobs. So Rebecca as a morgue tech and Edie as a painter. Edie paints Rebecca's cadavers as she's working on them, mm. and neither of them really knows why. Okay. Money appears every now and then on Edie's nightstand. She doesn't know who it comes from, and she just stays indefinitely Mm. in the house. And the relationship isn't nurturing between them, but it isn't fully hostile. And you get the sense of maybe something sexual between them, but also definitely not. Yeah. It's really weird. It's unlike any relationship that I've seen written before, except maybe like the Mrs. Danvers character. Where Mm, it's just like. Even there, she's very very imposing. Yeah, but like. Like, she has weird moments of being, like, helpful. Yeah. It's very weird. So this is a scene where Rebecca takes Edie out, just says, like, have you got plans? No, right, let's go. Mm -hmm. And unexpectedly takes her to a thrash metal gig. Okay. (laughs) Um, And it's quite long, but I think it's worth it. It's, like, one of my favourite scenes. By the time I get back to the house, the afternoon is gone. Akila is shut up in her room with a K-drama and Rebecca is up and about, a moist yoga mat unfurled on the floor. She emerges from the bathroom with a roll of tinfoil, looks at my painting and doesn't comment on it. She asks if I can help her dye her hair. As I begin to apply the dye, she adjusts the towel around her neck and glares at herself in the mirror with such a private disdain that I feel I shouldn't be in the room. Our eyes meet in the mirror and I hold her gaze, though sustained eye contact has a way of quickly becoming unfriendly, the ratty terry cloth cape and tinfoil mohawk a sympathetic combination on any other woman but sort of scary on her. I tell her to get on her knees. I bend her over the tub and secure her by the neck. She presses her face into the towel and I rinse the dye out, and it is only then that I think about the colour, the blonde now black, making her look paler, a little dissonant, like an adult actress assuming the role of Snow White. She looks at herself in the mirror and smiles, disappears into her room and comes out in all black. She asks me if I have any plans, though of course it is not really a question and she ushers me outside where there is an angry orange dusk. We get in the car and don't speak. 
She turns the radio to an AM channel where a sleepy voice is talking about submarine acoustics, describing in detail how sound waves carve through leagues of water and function as an eye. She lowers the windows and lets her hair down and we pull into a small 24-hour garage. The stars are coming out. After she laces up her boots and presses three studs into the cartilage of her ear, which in descending order appear to be a heart, a fist and a star of David, we walk past an ammo depot and a half-lit school bus lot and cut through the shaggy line of trees, the woods truncated and swollen with rain, opening to a field with an elevated soundstage where three men emerge from underneath their hair. She offers me a cup of whiskey and downs her own with a determination that darkens her face, and the crowd around us, frothy and homogenous, white men relieved by the idea that they deserve to be angry, though in their spit and lean you can see they are aware of their performance, and so close to this gap of enviable trauma, by God they better make it good, better get in the pit and extract some teeth. Rebecca looks disappointed by the crowd. She turns to me and says that everyone is old. She says she doesn't know when it happened. She offers me a drink that looks like river water and says it's a martini. I take a sip and it does not taste great. The vermouth and gin dominated entirely by a greasy residue I now realise has come from the olives, which are stuffed with cheese. The paper cup is already giving way. She removes her ring, slides it into her pocket and tells me not to make a big deal of it. She says not everything means something, and in fact lots of things mean nothing. And technically this is the beauty of music that prioritises brawn, and by brawn what she means is force. What she means is speed. There is a curtain of mist around the stage. This is likely due to lightning and a few discreetly placed smoke machines, but as the lead guitarist indulges a brief aside about Helsinki's transit system, I see the human component of the humidity, the carbon dioxide and salivary thrust, the centrifuge of salt and hair. As the next song starts, Rebecca says she is used to attending these concerts mostly as a function of being someone's girlfriend. She was not permitted to have an opinion, so much as observe these boyfriends' exhibitions of taste, which for the particular sect of Hyde Park thrash light boys that Rebecca favoured, meant maintaining a steady supply of safety pins and gauze, meant Elmer's glue and DIY tattoos with straight pins and India ink, meant conversations in porta potties about dragons and the bourgeoisie, critiques on the augmentation of the capital in the form of the pierced white boys from upstate New York, railing against their parents and banks and society, which was a word she said so much it began to sound like it was a word they made up. At 15, Rebecca cleaned the blood out of her docks and began to feel like she did not actually care about capitalism, like she did not care about authenticity, because at these concerts, which were about the scourge of assimilation, there was somehow still a code of dress, and the only thing that made it good was the brawn, the punch she felt inside her ears, the entropy and crystallised core of communal violence that is impossible to contain. She rakes her hair out of her face and says that Eric was a welcome aberration. A guy who called soda pop. A guy who didn't like piercings. Who listened unironically to the bedazzled canker that is disco. He seemed earnest, not like the rest of her boyfriends who of course went on to work for the banks. I follow her gaze to the medical tent where a man is being lowered onto a stretcher. She scoffs and orders another drink at the bar and then we move into the crowd where she bares her teeth and rips off her shirt. A man barrels towards us, takes the shirt and disappears. She doesn't seem to mind. She drags me into the mosh, removes her bra and tosses it towards the stage. I try to honour the spirit of the thing and not pay too much attention to her breasts, which are lovely and small and slightly mismatched. These are the sort of breasts you need if you want to mosh. 
and as the lead guitarist circles his finger and says, Grind! Rebecca pulls me in deeper, leading with her cute unmoving breasts, and everything is crunchy and in a minor key, two walls made of arms careening towards each other that impact a compression I feel in my uterus, a man in an AARP shirt coming right for me and pulling me down by the hair into the hard brown grass where there are cigarette butts and band-aids and crushed Dixie cups. As I claw my way up for air, I look around and realise I've lost her, though during my time on the ground someone stepped on the back of my neck with one of those four-pound platform docks, and I did not completely hate it, and though the music is bad, it is bad like a deviated septum, like acid reflux, like a monkey paw, damage is incurred for unnecessary indulgence, which is to take a man by the ears and get him down on stomp on his open consenting face. This glee cut a little short when I see Rebecca is just fine, near the front of the stage with mud caked between her tits. In this moment, maybe we're on the same page. But everything is temporary, and in an hour, she buys a new shirt from the merch table, and we walk silently to the car, a chill in the air that reminds me that soon it will be fall. Oh my god, I loved that. <laughs> it's just so mental. Yeah. <laughs> Like, that scene is so burned into my mind, because mm. it's out of place in the book, mm-hmm. but it's also out of place in the narrative. Yeah. Like, the wife figure is so strange, and that is maybe the most fleshed out and, like, vulnerable that we see her. Right. And it's just wild. Like, you get that it's this feeling of breaking away from, like, suburban mundanity, mm-hmm. which I guess is what Eric is doing when he brings Edie into the marriage to begin with. Mm-hmm. But this is the only time that it feels like Rebecca's taken a piece of that for herself. Mm-hmm. And she's so much more carefully and thoughtfully sketched out than Eric ever is. Yeah. Like, I feel like you get a really good sense of her in that scene. Yeah, definitely. And the third important relationship is Edie's one with Akila, which is strange because Akila is 12 or 13 and Edie is 23. So there is less of a gap in age between them than there is between Edie and the couple. Mm-hmm who I think they're meant to be about 15 or 20 years older. Mm-hmm. Akila and Edie do have a lot in common. They play video games together a lot. Akila is really into fandom culture, which is really cool to see in a book, actually, because I don't feel like I've seen that written before. Yeah. They go to Comic-Con, actually, as a family because of that. But one of the reasons that Edie thinks she's been kept around is to be some sort of like black guardian to Akila. Yeah. And the main metaphor for this is her hair. So Akila often wears cheap party store wigs because she has no control over her natural hair. Mm-hmm. So this is just a scene of Edie and Akila after Akila's birthday party, which does not go very well. Okay. At home, we disperse to our separate rooms. Akila's gifts, which were hauled out of the party room and back into the truck, sit unopened on the dining table. At midnight, Akila knocks on my door. She says she has reason to believe that the woman who is trying to put out the fire is the male clerk's mother. This is in a video game. Since the male clerk doesn't engage in direct combat, his HP depends entirely on the successful management of his mood. To keep it stable, we visit the mess tent and talk the NPCs to the end of their script, though bad selections can be more damaging than nothing at all. If we have coffee instead of tea, if we engage the lieutenant and he shows us a photo of his dog, I suggest that we try opening the mail, but his mood is not high enough to absorb the illegality and it kills him instantly. I get up to leave, but Akila calls my name. She considers me and then removes her wig. She puts it down on the floor, inside out, and there is a tag sewn between the weft that says party supply. Then I look at her and for a moment I assume she's wearing a wig cap, but it is her scalp, exposed and covered in chemical scars. 
You let it stay in too long, I say. I thought it was supposed to burn, she answers, and this too is part of that common tongue. Sodium hydroxide and the real estate of the scalp. The first time I lost my hair, I was ten and no one was home. My hands were too small for the gloves that came in the box, and the relaxer, bought in secret at a sparse upstate beauty supply, singed the back of my neck. I hid the hair I'd lost in a bin near the community pool, and once my mother realised what had generated my new interest in scarves, she didn't talk to me for a week. I go to my room and find my shea butter, whole bottle oil and silk scarf. When I return, I have her sit between my knees so that I can have a closer look, and I notice that in the hair she still has, her curls are still intact. She says that she panicked, that she wanted to be different for the party. As I wrap the scarf, I am too aware of her head. I am aware of her skull, of the vulnerability of her 13-year-old bones. I leave the oil and shea on her dresser, and for a while I am unable to sleep, because she is 13 and I remember how it felt from the inside. I remember what I thought I knew about people and the pride I took in being alone, but from the outside the loneliness is palpable and I think she is too young. Mm. Yeah, I don't really have much to say about this other than the relationship between them is maybe like the one purely good thing in this book. Yeah. I think that without this relationship the book might have been too cool for its own good, Mm. but this gives it like a real human heart. Yeah. yeah, which is really nice. And there's one very short last scene that I want to read, and it's one of the few scenes where all four of them are together, mm-hmm. and it's in the car on the way to Comic-Con. And I think it just really neatly sums up the four characters, particularly Evie, because obviously she's the narrator, so every observation is a reflection of her. But yeah, this is this is a really funny scene, but it's also just it's very cringe. Okay. <laughs> on the road, everyone gets a turn with the ox cord. Eric's French house and his eyes in the mirror seeking recognition for deep cuts. Akila's dreary Japanese ska and Rebecca's mystifying choice of talk radio instead of the music she ostensibly likes, though folkloric thrash is hardly needed when you're on the New Jersey turnpike in the sideways rain. Akila hands me the aux cord and I go through my phone and try to find something suitable, but all my playlists seem inappropriate. The one I exercise to the one that is mostly sample-heavy trip-hop I would theoretically have sex to, though most of the time I just end up getting high and looking at unsubtle dystopian memes about how social media is changing the length of the human neck. I flirt briefly with making a statement through my song selection, but I am too old. However, when I see I somehow have half of Phil Collins's face value downloaded to my phone, it turns out I am not. I put on In the Air tonight and savour the studious readjustments that happen in the car. Akila pointedly turning to her phone, Eric's posture high and rigid as the easy pass scans and we cruise through the toll. Of course, Rebecca is less obvious, but as we enter the city, she turns to look out of the window and smiles. But after three minutes and 15 seconds have elapsed, I regret playing the song. It reminds me of how alien their house felt, how quickly it began to feel like mine. <laughs> so there's like a few things that I really love about this passage. <laughs> One is that it's like a very relatable thing to be judged on what you choose to play in the car. Yeah. And I like that neurosis of the decision <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> And another is that I have realised I'm a real sucker for what I'd call like family envy stories. So like where an outsider wants to belong to a family but they don't. Mm-hmm. Like my favourite book is The Member of the Wedding, which is literally that. But in this car, none of them really seem to go together based yeah. on their music taste. Yeah. 
And in fact, the only way that all three of them are truly united is through their reactions to Edie, the mm-hmm. outsider. Which I just think is a really well done take on that kind of story. So, yeah. This book is super intriguing. There's loads that I've left out. And it's definitely too clever for me to like parse out all of the politics in one read. Because I haven't even scratched the surface of some of the bizarre sexual and social politics that go on. Yeah. But if sinister, domestic, anti-romance is your thing, definitely check out Luster. I also love the title because it's not a word. It's not spelled R-E at the end that's to do with hair. Mm -hmm. It's like how you'd spell someone who lusts. Yeah. But that's not an actual word until this. So, yeah, notable. Love that. I'm very intrigued by that book. I'd quite like to read that. It's one of those ones that when I was reading it, I didn't think that you would like it, but then when I started thinking about it after I read it, I was like, no, you maybe would. So for our writing chat this year, this year? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, it's been a long long day. (laughs) For a writing chat this week, (laughs) we decided to look at techniques that we've learned from books this year. Yeah. So we decided to go one that we would use or think works and one that we've realised doesn't. Mm -hmm. So what techniques do you have? So for my one that I think works, I was trying to think of something that sounds more exciting than this, but honestly, out of the books I've read this year, that answers short chapters. Mm. which has been in quite a few books I've read this year. I mean, Vicious and Vengeful are a couple. I mentioned that earlier. But another one I remember short chapters being in is The Lamplighters by Emma Stonex, which I read recently. And I don't know why, but when I started writing my novel, I, I kept trying to make my chapters a certain length because I just thought they had to be like mm. not horrendously long but like I was like oh it needs to be like you know a, a, good, a good chunk of pages like but actually in the books I mentioned the short chapters lent so much to the story they make things feel quicker paced like time is sort of flying by but they also build tension especially if the chapters flick between different characters or different time periods like you're always wanting to read on to get back to the other narrative Mm -hmm. and then vice versa so it hasn't made me like restructure my entire novel or anything but now I'm getting more comfortable with maybe letting some chapters appear more like sort of vignettes yeah like like, little asides yeah like amongst the plot and and I have been thinking ahead to my next novel that I want to write which I know will have multiple perspectives Mm. so I think that the short chapters will be really useful then for like all the reasons that I said before. Do you want me to do the one I'll avoid or do you want to do your... Sure, I'll do my good yeah. one first. Yeah. So I think my one that I've realised... Well, I mean, there's loads, actually, that I've yeah, learned there, from books this year. Loads. I've kind of cheated and had to. Like, so I talked a lot in the episode on Malibu Rising about the switch from the main narrators to, like, passing external narrators yeah. in the second half, which, like, really blew my mind. I loved that. Yeah. But I talked about that before. I guess, like, I never realised you were allowed to do that. Um, (laughs) But I think another one is probably from this book, Luster, and it's a similar thing to yours. You can't tell when I'm reading it out, but on the page it's written in very short sections. Oh, yeah. Just, like, two or three paragraphs with big breaks in between. And it feels like, when you're reading it, it feels like there was more, and she stripped out all the extra but left the space in. Mm Mm-hmm. 
which is interesting because it does make it quicker to read, as you've said, but it also plays into this idea of a lot going unsaid, Mm -hmm. which I think is a big thing in the narrative, so it really enhances the story. And I like that idea of like playing around with white space in prose because obviously I do that in poetry, but I'd never really thought about applying it to a novel. No, oh, that yeah, that's very interesting. What's your thing that you didn't think worked? Technique I think I'll avoid is one that I noticed and really disliked <laughs> on the other side by Carrie Hope Fletcher, which is a book I really didn't like anyway. Mm. There were multiple problems I had with that book. But that's, you know, I don't want to talk about that. But the the biggest thing and the lesson I learned was about, like, perspective and narration. So on the other side has third-person narration, which I think was meant to be omniscient mm. and therefore allowing you to see into various characters' heads, which is a technique. Mm. However, I really didn't enjoy how this was done in this book because sometimes the new perspectives came in a new chapter, which... I think makes sense and is a very effective way of showing a change in perspective. But most of the book follows protagonist Evie's perspective. So you're sort of used to her perspective and then you'll just get random sentences thrown in from like her love interest's perspective. Like oh. in the middle of paragraphs. Like it's just really jarring. Like I said, I think it was meant to be an omniscient narrator. But because so much of the story was from Evie's point of view, mm-hmm. it felt like a mistake every time you saw Vincent's perspective. Yeah, like there weren't enough different focalizers for yes. it to feel like multiple focalizers. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, what I learned from that is that if you want to write multiple perspectives, you need to be very clear about how you signify that change. Mm. Like, I think you need to create rules for yourself. So are you allowing a chapter for each perspective? or line breaks to like differentiate between them or like even different writing styles to kind of Mm. show the different personalities or I think you need to write in a style where it makes sense to quickly flip between people's POVs so for example I think that wouldn't be out of place in like a fairy tale retelling or like a myth retelling yeah or or like a psychological thriller or something like that or like a mystery but yeah, I just really didn't enjoy how it was done oh, <laughs> in this yeah. book. I think as well you have to, it's like you've said, it's not like it couldn't work, but you have to make it consistently varied. Yes. And not just like, if you've got one narrative focaliser, that's just a single POV. Yeah. Like there were there were chapters where it did mm. change POV and those made sense. But yeah, it was just the random lines. I'm like, who is this? <laughs> like, why? What's happening? That's fair. <laughs> and what's yours? I struggled to think of something that I don't think works because normally I'm like you and I just don't take a notice of it. Yeah. But the only book that I've read this year that really didn't work for me, it was actually a play and it's called This Restless House by Zenny Harris. And it's like a postmodern retelling of the Electra story from Greek mythology, mm. which sounds like it would be good. Yeah. But I think for me, it got a bit too postmodern where it actually ended up in the setting of a psychiatric ward. Right. But, like, the character of Electra still existed. But okay. then it was, like, dealing with, like, the Electra complex yeah. as well. And there was ghosts, so you didn't know what was, like, psychological thriller and what was magic realism. I don't know, it just felt very messy. Mm-hmm. Like, it was ambitious, which was cool. But I think the thing that I took away from it was, like, one simple metaphor or illusion can work a lot better than trying to be too clever yeah. about it. Because... 
it was like it was in three acts and it was in the third act that it tried it felt like it tried to be too self-referential and I just thought I'm usually quite up for that kind of thing <laughs> but maybe that's something that you have to work up to as a writer yeah so I can, I can see that that's my I, I would be cautious about trying to be self-referential yeah in my work yeah What's your quickfire favourite this week? My quickfire favourite is a TV show, WandaVision. Yay! Yay! So, I'm a few months late to the game with this one because I didn't have Disney Plus until now. But, oh my god, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, the premise of this is super interesting. It begins as a 50s sitcom, emulating the Dick Van Dyke show, starring Wanda Maximoff and The Vision. But, if anyone's seen the Marvel films, you already know that's weird for two reasons. One is that Marvel films are not 50 sitcoms, so that's wrong. Mm. And two, and I don't feel like this is a spoiler, as Infinity War came out three years ago, The Vision's dead. <laughs> um, sorry to break it to you. <laughs> You're watching this sitcom wondering what the hell is going on, and that is basically the plot of the show, is working out what's going on. Yes. <laughs> so you watch the WandaVision sitcom, which changes in style each episode, pretty much going through the decades from 50s to present day sitcom style like Modern Family and you try and figure out how this is all happening. Did Wanda use her powers to make it happen? Is it all in her head? Is someone doing this to her? Is it a parallel universe? Because that is now a thing in the Marvel universe. Right. The casting in this show is also incredible. Catherine Han plays nosy neighbour Agnes who's just great. Evan Peters has a really great role which I will not go into too much but for those of you who have seen it and have seen the X-Men films will know why I enjoyed his character. And also I can't say I cared too much about Wanda and Vision as a couple or even as characters in the other Marvel films. Like I've never disliked them but I always loved other characters more. But the beauty of this show is that you have a whole season to really understand them as people and as a couple. And I totally fell in love with them. Like, I get it now. I'm rooting for them. (laughs) (laughs) And the scene that really got me is the one which has been turned into a meme now. It's a flashback to the Captain America Civil War time period where Wanda is grieving for her brother. And Vision says to her, what is grief? if not love persevering and that phrase has been memefied a lot but the scene itself really moved me and the finale like no spoilers but the last interaction we see of them in that episode it's like a gut punch oh so good so good so yeah i don't know how easy the show is to follow without having seen the films that wanda and vision are in but to be fair, I think that is by design. Yeah. Um, I think if you watch this show without knowing Vision's dead, then there's a huge chunk of context that you're missing. But I do highly recommend it if you're a Marvel fan, a fan of intertextuality and fourth wall breaking. And yeah, it's about two characters who I don't feel get enough focus in the films, which is why I never really felt connected to them before. But now I do really care about their story. Yeah, it's just great, and I'm going to give the other Marvel shows a go. I've heard mixed things about The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I've heard nothing but great things about Loki, so I think I'm going to wait till like all the episodes of that are out before I watch that. And Is Loki, like, is Tom Hiddleston still Loki? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought he wouldn't be in a TV show. I just felt like, you know, he's like a movie guy. Um, but I suppose he was in that Night Manager thing. Yeah, he's been in a few TV shows. <laughs> I might watch that one then, because I like that, that Marvel story. Yeah. And I like him, he's a good actor. Yeah. But um, my, like, interest in the MCU, like, ebbs and flows, like, I definitely felt that we were too saturated with it for a while. Mm. But after, like, a wee break, I'm happy to be, like dipping my toes back in and this was a great show to get me excited about like the characters and the storylines and the universe again was this has shown how little i actually know about it we yeah. watched black panther the other night yeah. is that part of it or is that yeah yeah right yeah marvel yeah okay that yeah. was good i like that one <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was fun <laughs> i'll i'll educate Rebecca eventually. <laughs> I have seen lots of the I films. Know, you have. I just had just you just don't really know all the connections. I don't them. engage with the fandom at large. Yeah. But yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> What's your quick fire favourite? My quick fire favourite. So I feel like we all know if we didn't already about the vitamin string quartet because of Bridgerton. <laughs> yeah. And the absolute fire orchestral covers of like Thank You Next and Wildest Dreams that were in mm. the background of Bridgerton which was such a move by the way, whoever produced that idea Yeah, I really Chef's hope kiss. Vitamin String Quartet have covered Young Bloods by Five Sauce and I just really want that to be in season 2 of Bridgerton <laughs> <laughs> like please Bridgerton, please put Five Sauce in Bridgerton that would be amazing. <laughs> but I think what I didn't realise until recently is just how many cover albums they've done of how many different things. Yeah. Like, there's an album of John Hughes movie covers, Studio Ghibli covers, Kanye yeah. West, which hilariously, in my notes, I have written Kanye Worst and I didn't even mean that. <laughs> the Weeknd, Daft Punk, Black Keys, Nightmare Before Christmas. There's so many. But yeah. my current favourite is their album of Regina Spector covers. Mm. Because... It takes me right back to like my manic pixie dream girl adolescent fantasies. <laughs> it's so nostalgic, but like hearing them reimagined as classical covers without the lyrics has given me a whole new appreciation for the songs. Because even though I've listened to them five million times, I'm normally really wrapped up in like Regina's lyrics and her vocals because they are amazing. Yeah. But yeah, listening to like the classical reimaginings of them just makes me realize wow, these melodies are amazing mm -hmm. and I've been listening to it while working and it like motivates me so much <laughs> so yeah I think I highly recommend Vitamin String Quartet if you're easily distracted by lyrics but you like the comfort of like familiar songs yeah yeah they are great and all the Bridgerton sorry just go back to Bridgerton all the songs that were picked for Bridgerton like they weren't written for Bridgerton they were ones that Vitamin String Quartet like already had released yeah so like their whole back catalogue is basically open, I assume, for Bridgerton to use. So I'll be very intrigued to see what it just what songs. It's just so fun. Like you, it's like playing tea parties as a child. <laughs> like you feel elegant and fancy. Yeah. But it's it's pretend elegant and fancy because it's pop songs. Yeah. Like I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a root for us? I'll be honest, this isn't so much a root as just like a cool nature word. Okay. Which, let's be honest, this is where a lot of my roots are ending up. <laughs> and it's just because I've been reading a lot of nature articles. Yep. But here it is. 
Did you know that baby damselflies, which is a cool name already, mm-hmm. damselflies, but the baby ones are called nymphs. Oh, I didn't know that. And they are these little shimmery, shiny winged things that live on reeds at the edge of the water. So it totally makes sense mm. with the idea of nymphs. I love that. But also, random fact, these nymphs stay on those reeds with their mothers for up to three years before becoming fully-fledged damselflies. Oh. Like, for context, a dragonfly, which looks like a damselfly, yeah. lives for 56 days mm-hmm. in total. Damselflies are just hardy little bastards. <laughs> like, how are you living for three years as a baby insect? Yeah. Like, which makes them also feel a bit magical. Yeah. And, like, ethereal and otherworldly. Anyway, I just thought that was cool. That is cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to be using, like, nymphs and damselflies in all of my poems now. I feel mm. like that's going to be my new, like, fixation. Yeah, especially because the word damsel's in there it's as so well. so good. And you got, like, damsel in distress. Yeah. Like, such a good word. <laughs> oh, and then you've got, like, the connotations of the word dam, like, as a curse. Mm. And dam that you would, like, keep water behind. There's so mm. much you can do. <laughs> do you have an insight for us? I do. I have another Cornish myth-ish today or rather just like a few stories about one of my favorite places in Cornwall which is St Michael's Mount. So this is a castle built on top of a small rocky island in the sea Marazion which you get to by walking over an ancient cobbled causeway which is only accessible during the low tide. So metal. So already that's cool. (laughs) There and there are countless stories surrounding St Michael's Mount. Some are historical and some are myth, but I thought I would just list a selection of all of the above today. So firstly, apparently it's a very spiritual place because it supposedly lies where two ley lines intersect, right on the mount. From as far back as 495 AD, there are tales of seafarers lured by mermaids onto the rocks or guided to safety by an apparition of St Michael, who is the patron saint of fishermen. It's said that Archangel Michael appeared on the western side of the island to ward fishermen from certain peril. So that's nice of him. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice chap! Yeah. Apparently four miracles were said to have happened here during 1262 and 1263. Couldn't find out what they were apart from it was something about fevers. So there you go. There's four miracles. I love um, the definition of a miracle in the yeah. church, by the way. It's just I know. <laughs> lovely. I also have a fact about his name. So in Cornish, St. Michael's Mount translates to... <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> Caraclusicus. Who knows? But that means the grey rock in a wood. So many people think that at one point the island may not have been in an island at all, but actually in the middle of a large forest. Hmm. And I remember hearing a story of a giant who ripped all the surrounding trees out of the ground to make the mount vulnerable, but he was slayed and it's his blood that created the water which now surrounds the island. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. All of these myths are so violent. I know. There's plenty of ghost stories there as well, obviously. One ghost which I've heard of a few times is a lady in grey. She's believed to be the nanny of the residents in Auburn family in the 1750s and it's said that she became pregnant but the father of the child refused to have anything to do with her so she threw herself from the top of the castle. But apparently she's a benign ghost. 
Yeah, well, I mean, she was just not having a good time, but yeah. it's like she's probably not vengeful. No, she's alright. It's been used as a fortress, so just some instances of this are the War of the Roses and the Cornish Rebellion against Edward VI. The last occasion that the mount was used in a military role was in 1646 during the English Civil War. Fun fact for you. And also to go back to giants, the story of Jack the Giant Killer takes place here. So supposedly the giant Cormoran built this mount and would wade to shore to steal cattle as they grazed in the fields on the mainland. So a local boy Jack got fed up with this and rode out to the island one night. He dug a huge pit on the island and stood at one side of it and sounded his horn. So Cormoran the giant heard this and woke and ran down the hill to find the source of this noise. But he fell in the pit and lost the boy was titled Jack the Giant Killer. And he also becomes one of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. <laughs> Fun fact. Also the same Jack of the Beanstalk. Yeah, I was going to say, it's yeah. got to be the same guy. Yeah. He, he killed a lot of giants, turns out. Not just... Kid really hated giants. Yeah. And you can actually find a heart-shaped cobblestone on the island, which is the giant's heart. And some say if you listen closely, you can actually still hear it beating. <laughs> I have been there. I can confirm that you can see the... I didn't hear a heartbeat, but I saw the cobblestone. <laughs> <laughs> How big is it? It's like that big. Okay. Like little, two hands. Yeah, little heart. Cute. Little cobblestone. So you're, there you go, that's some stories from St. Michael's Mount. That wasn't an exhaustive list, but just a bunch that I thought were interesting. That's very cool. So yeah, if you're ever in Cornwall, I definitely recommend going. It's very beautiful. There's also like a, a just like tropical or like exotic plant garden just like on the hill as you're like walking up so that's cool is that the um, golf balls or is that a different no that's thing? the eden project yeah no this is just like plants that the family have planted <laughs> i'm like the golf balls as if we're not getting the eden project here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i i recommend going there's something very like mystical and mysterious about like crossing this path that disappears beneath the sea that's definitely been in some mermaid book that i read when i was like 10 mm. So our question for this week mm-hmm. was, which fictional character would you invite to dinner? Yes. yes. So which fictional character would you invite to dinner? So there are countless characters I wish I could meet. Oh, sorry, who submitted this question? Oh, Hannah, I think. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are countless characters I wish I could meet, but I feel like dinner insinuates conversation. Mm. So I wanted to pick someone that I thought I'd have a good chat <laughs> with. My mind actually first went to Darlington from Ninth House because he's so obsessed with New Haven is like this living, breathing thing and like magic. And I feel like he always keeps it to himself because instead of sharing it with people, so I thought he would enjoy me asking lots of questions <laughs> about it. But then my mind went to all the like immortal characters in books because I thought they all have loads of stories. Mm. So the character I pick today, because I'm sure it would be another answer another day, is Tessa Gray from Cassandra Clare's Shadowhunter books. She's immortal. She's been alive since the 1800s. So I feel like she'd have loads of cool like history to share, like just like a cool life. But also she's been in the Shadowhunter world so has loads of like crazy anecdotes about like saving the world and all that. Mm. But also she's just as obsessed with books as I am. 
and she has read lots of them so I just feel like we'd have a lot to talk about there and I think it'd be a very interesting dinner conversation. That's so nice. <laughs> I love that. Thanks. <laughs> you so my, I have an immediate and then a rethought answer as well. Yeah. So my immediate answer was Estelle from The Invisible Life of Annie mm. Leroux because I just feel like she's so wise and she would give you so much good perspective and yeah. also she's low-key magic. Yeah. And I just thought, like, if I was only going to have the duration of a dinner to talk to someone and I wanted to get the most out of that for myself, I feel like I would love to pick her brain. Yes. And she seems like a fun time. Mm -hmm. But then I thought about, okay, what if I was being unselfish about my answer? Who would I like to have dinner with? And my answer is Tupo the llama type kid from the galaxy in the ground within Uh by Becky Chambers because... So much of that character in that book is them interacting with food and foreign food mm-hmm. because they live on like a like a hotel basically. Yeah, and it's just a delight <laughs> to see this like little goofy child trying all these different foods. And mm-hmm. I thought I would love to cook for Tupo, so that's my answer. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> us yeah that's us this week the last episode of season two we've had a lot of fun with these episodes and hope you guys have enjoyed them too and liked having episodes every week but yeah we're going to go on our season break for a while as of recording we've not actually finalized the date but by the time this episode is up we will have so it'll be in the show notes when we are back (laughs) yeah yeah we won't be too long no and as always if you have any comments or questions in our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com we also have social media which is linked in the show notes along with everything we talked about today including the infatuated mix which has all the music we mention and please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there please let us know what you want for the new season because there's still time for us to plan it (laughs) yeah if there's anything Um, that's a special request if there was an episode that you really liked the format of, one of the specials that you think, oh, you want that, but with a different subject, yeah, please let us know. Yeah, and there's quite a few episodes of, of this season where we've sort of said, like, oh, send us this, send us that. Like, that still stands. Please still send them to us. And if there's anything that, that we can read out, we'll definitely do that in the next season. Don't think that it's just, like, an isolated yeah, thing. Yeah, the <laughs> offer is always open. Yeah. But yeah, thank you for a fun season. Thank you, Emily, for a fun season. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. (laughs) And we will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.